Welcome to We Are Water, a podcast by Beaver Watershed Alliance. With this podcast, we hope to encourage conversations about conservation through talks with our partners, landowners, and from our fieldwork. Joining us today is Dirk Phillip, an associate professor at the University of Arkansas, and he is back to speak with us about riparian buffer zones and riparian zones as a whole. I hope you enjoy and thank you for tuning in. Hey Dirk, thanks for joining us today to talk about riparian zones and different ag operations, including those. Thank you for having me. Um, so if you kind of want to get us started and talk about what a riparian zone is and how a landowner might, you know, be able to tell um, how extensive that is on their property and what that might look like for their operation. Yeah. A riparian zone is essentially that zone that surrounds creeks or rivers. And those have a certain extension depending on the uh, on the type of river. So you can look up. That's actually a very interesting topic in terms of the entire science behind geomorphology and how rivers looks like. Obviously, they look very differently in mountainous areas. They look very differently in an area where we are. They they are more straight and then steeper sloped in mountainous areas, and they are more meandering and then less sloped. In our area, is since we are here in this in this area of Northwest Arkansas, and it is in cases the the uh, the White River or other rivers that are south of Fateville, coming out of West Fork actually. So if you if you go down floating or you look at the river and you think, oh, that looks really natural, but if you look at pictures from hundred years ago, it's straightened out. So they changed at the same time than the repairing area. So those riparian areas, added simply, is the the entirety of plant vegetation that goes from the river banks out into the the uh, non-river areas, so to speak. And they, the closer you go to the river, typically you have large trees. And the further you go out, the lower the vegetation becomes, and it becomes then then whatever where, where people do their business in terms of farms or so. Here in this area, interestingly, since most of the area pre-settlement was covered with forest, more on the higher elevations, you had more like a southern type landscape. And but the closer you came to the rivers or the creeks, that was essentially all covered with forest. So over time, when settlers moved in, they uh, they restricted those riparian areas. And so nowadays there are really not a whole lot of properties left that have true repair and areas and obviously we don't really know just by historical records maybe how they look like but in general if you go with a definition maybe from NRCS or so yes a repair and area is something that goes out at least maybe 30 to 50 feet or even longer and that is there to protect the riverbanks with vegetation and of various kinds so taller ones trees and in medium size and lower ones to hold soil in place and prevent the rubber banks from collapsing. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we speak a lot with landowners and even have plantings for uh, kind of restoring that vegetation. And a lot of our partners do the same as well. And so for a landowner that does have a riparian zone and say they have a haying operation or something, what is, you know, a better way for them to protect that riparian zone through either a riparian buffer? Um, and how would that look like? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Simply because the uh, most of that area they use it for hay for a particular reason for, and that is simply because the soil is very fertile. So that, and that has something to do with sedimentation because over time, especially in a uh, in a very typical landscape, let's say if you look in Madison County, there are a lot of those landscapes where you have very wide river valleys, and somehow that creek or the river has been forced into a certain channel and those areas around are being used for farming and they're very fertile so you just can blame the producer for for saying okay yeah i want to hay all the way down all the way up to the to the riverbank and if you float like on the white uh, on the on the illinois river especially in oklahoma you see that way then all of a sudden you saw those steep banks coming off and they are they're maybe 10 15 feet high but farmers they hay all the way up to that to that riverbank simply because the soil is so fertile. So those areas they they can be protected by by somehow giving that waterway some of the space and essentially not hanging all the way to that to that riverbank. So I've seen whenever you drive across the state, you of you see over time how that how those banks more and more collapse. So, and then the producer, he forms all the way to those collapsed banks and then they collapse even further and then they form all the way to those collapsed banks. The uh, drastic way, so to speak, is then to take something out of production. So, and like NLCS says, okay, 30 feet or 30 to 50 feet is, is a uh, appropriate size and that or, or width and that is really not all that much but if you have a if you work in a floodplain so to speak and have a haying operation there then then it really it, it is very difficult to generalize that and say well how wide should that area be to have a full protection of that and if i may go off not necessarily off topic, but there are good examples down in, and frankly, I forgot what the name of the river is that comes out of the West Fork. There are, there are very good projects down there where a company stabilized the, the, the river banks with various kinds of, of methods like um, vegetation, revegetation, or, or even some more heavier engineering methods by putting uh, mats down and whatever you do, all that. The, um, that depends then where that is and then how meandering the river is. So it, it's very hard to say, okay, you should go 50 feet off or 100 feet. It is very difficult to say. So um, from, a, from a soil erosion standpoint, it's, it is enough if you simply do not cut that. So for, for even for 20 to 30 feet, you let it grow up and, and research has shown that even letting the vegetation grow up, that is very effective in, in in filtering the sediments. But I think I'm fearing it doesn't do a whole lot of protecting the riverbanks as such in certain circumstances from, from collapsing over time simply because you removed all the vegetation out of it. And that has actually not so much to do what happens on that hayfield, how much rain you get on that hayfield, but more so what happens upstream so since people always have this impression okay yeah that's the natural river but that river has been forced into certain stream banks right whenever they do road construction they may have to move it slightly whenever they had flooding in the past they have a dam somewhere and and all that 
changes around in that entire ecosystem around the river may result in a runoff at a certain point in time that has not been the case historically. So whatever water you run down that river may overwhelm the current system. So that's why, uh, so, you know, you heard about those 50 years event, rainstorm event in 100 years and 500 years, the intensity increases anyway with climate change. So that poses another risk where you, the water you have to run down those waterways nowadays they are way larger than the river originally intended to hold that. So in theory, I'm just saying in theory, you make it very clear here. In theory, you would have to go out and, and cover the entire floodplain with trees to have a decent repairing area. Obviously, you cannot do that, but you can do a minimum. And if you go out 30 to 50 feet and plant trees and establish a vegetation or even let the vegetation grow up and protect the riverbanks this way and obviously then it depends on the river if you have creeks that are very shallow and there's really not a steep drop off from your pasture into the river that is a different story you get away with more narrow river repairing areas but if you have a situation where the river may cough through a certain terrain then then you have to apply some some larger measures and then there's a question about how much do you want to take out of commission actually for your hay production yeah, yeah, and so it kind of goes back to a lot of these uh, topics that we might want to want to introduce to landowners. It it all has to start with the site visit. Sometimes it all depends on like what is their riparian area. What you know, do they have cut banks? Are they near a restored area? Like you mentioned a little earlier with the uh, Watershed Conservation Resource Center, they they do a lot of those repairs down by the White River. Mm -hmm. And so you know, to kind of keep a landowner from having to go through these big repairs that'll cost, you know, them a lot more money down the road. They can start with these smaller tasks to kind of implement and do do a little bit over time instead of having to, you know, lose lose land through um, different flooding events. So go back to our haying operation that we're using as an example. Have you seen or maybe heard of landowners thinking that this is like a missed opportunity for um, more production for them? Yeah, actually, um, I it is very hard to tell, okay, well, how much does actually from that form sediments go into the waterway unless you, you measure that. And then even if you have a relatively narrow, as I said, 10 to 15, maybe just a, we cannot go to the, all the way to the bank anyway, because he just can run his tractor in the, off the bank or something. That may be enough to fill out all whatever his... his um, if he has some runoff from, from nutrients or whatever, if that would go into the river. So it is very, very hard. You can simply kind of trace it. That's why it's always this fight. And well, how much is that actually the, 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 the low oxygen zone down in the Gulf of Mexico? How much is that due to, to farmers in the Midwest? And if you talk to soil scientists, they say, yeah, 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 it is. But, but you can't really trace that a single nitrogen molecule all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico is simply impossible. So you, you you make a prediction and run models and so forth and you assume, yeah, that's the case. So that's why there's always this, this, this conflict, okay, well, it's not really coming from my farm and there was the reason then, okay, well, it's called non-point source pollution. So yeah, we, but then you can't really hold anyone liable particularly. So then you, but then you have to go out to the landscape and change that somehow. Yeah, so to come back to your original question, 
Um, yeah, they are, I've seen, I see properties here in Northwest Arkansas that clearly uh, under certain circumstances, I'm 100% sure they have some negative impact, but it is so spotty. You can say when exactly that, that impact occurs. So, so one of the, uh, the uh, farmers, a, ch a chicken farmer once told me, well, uh, when it rains, the effect comes from everywhere, right? So for example, what, what happens, what I hear now is there's a lot of problems with that legacy phosphorus. So on former pesticides, people start putting those subdivisions in and they start constructing left and right. And then you, you basically have a lot of erosion going off and that doesn't come off a farm anymore, it comes off a construction site. So, so if you leave that in place, you can pretty much, it stays in place whether you have a very wide or very narrow repair area. But once you destroy the surface of it, yeah, then you get some some intake and then you get water quality impairments. So it's very hard for me to answer that question. Okay, have you seen this or that? I can tell you, I've seen properties where I see, okay, yeah, that's going to be a result in some damage, but it's very difficult for me. I cannot tell you any names. <laughs> because that <laughs> Yeah, of course. Anyway. <laughs> What, what you know what I want to mention is um since you make that with hay because hay is that what's mostly done in those more fertile areas otherwise they wouldn't use it for hay it is not it may be uh, since you have a you limit your when your hay field you limit your time of a short canopy to a relatively short period of time throughout the year. So that may be more sustainable than what you have when you would craze that because farmers, many farmers, they simply overcraze their pastures. So, so it doesn't mean they run it totally into the dirt, but they have no canopy on it. So whenever something grows, cattle craze it. And those canopies, they can be, uh, can be way shorter over time and long term than when you have a hay field so if you have a hay field that itself can be a a filter by itself you know and then once you harvest that and then it, it is prone to some runoff maybe during that relatively short period of time after you hate it but most of the year then there's a substantial soil cover on it so that is not so that hay field by default is less or let's say is more conducive to erosion than when you have a grazing operation on that particular field. Yeah, so if you were to run a grazing operation and want a red period buffer, how would you how would you prevent that overgrazing through fencing or what what method have you seen implemented in the past? Yeah, so in in, in general producers when you look around here in, in northwest Arkansas, they uh, they give cattle full access to to the creek and the reason for that is they, they need water simply so the 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 way to do it to give them access to the creek and they drink out of the creek or the river bank and and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it because somehow you have to make access to water for those animals the uh, the downside is of course cattle can be very damaging to that entire ecosystem and then that has something to do with hoof action with rubbing on the with the head on the river banks and in sometimes those are more pronounced in the middle of the pasture where a little creek runs through than in a big 
river access. So let's say if you have a property adjacent, let's say to the White River or whatever, or the Illinois River, the damage overall may be relatively speaking, relatively small, simply because they don't like to rummage through the woods and all that. They have a certain access and this is our point where they get the water from. While if you have a creek, a smaller creek running through your property, then they do substantial damage to that creek bank simply because they have access to it. So if you, uh, it, it is very hard. I don't know when I came here, you always have those high expectations from yourself. You say, yeah, they need to remove the cattle from the from the creeks and all that. Well, they you can't really do that. Simply it's a property and it just can go out and point fingers and say, well, you need to remove your cattle out of those creeks. But over time, I think people got more conscious and then understand there are other ways to do it. You can pump the water out of the creek and provide water access, or, or you can create um, particular areas where they have access to it. It doesn't have to be so that you let them roaming around anywhere. Then another argument, maybe from the producer side, is putting up a fence is very expensive. So if you put up a fence around a, a, an area that may be of temporary nature, simply because that that entire thing moves. So if you get the flooding, your, your fence lands into the river. And obviously, the wider the repair area, the less of a problem is it going to be. But um, bottom line, from a from a purely ecological standpoint, wildlife standpoint, sustainability standpoint, water quality standpoint, yes. If you maintain a repair area of 50 feet or even longer, your cattle simply do not have business in that area. Unless you leave let them in there for temporary grazing purposes. And if you go out that far from the creek, then you can put up a fence that is felt that is permanent. And because that far out of the normally it doesn't it doesn't get ripped out. So I know that there are probably producers or listeners who say, okay, yeah, no, no, in my particular case, yeah, it happened. And but that is then very specific to the geography. As I said, if you go, if you look around here and you have floodplains, where actually a creek or river likes to meander, well, this is the floodplain of the river. So you know if there's some major water coming down the river, that's called a floodplain for a reason. So so that is that may affect your your grazing areas. There, I think the best way to address all that is you somehow you you have to protect them. So and 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 um for for various reasons and and whenever you have a water quality impairment it's very difficult to say when that happens you know it may not happen at all and then all of a sudden it happens all at once but you can make you can give your livestock access to those repair areas relatively easily you just have to be conscious about it so you have to let them in for a few days and move them out so they can graze they can graze the understory they can even uh, clean out an area for you so to speak where you want to maybe plant further forages or whatever. That all works. You just have to be conscious about it and, and try to avoid letting them do their thing. And because then then certainly long-term damage occurs. For a landowner to kind of uh, wrap their mind around taking care of a buffer zone or taking care of a riparian area, what are some economic benefits that they might be able to reap from, um, from this management perspective? 
that is look from the top of my head just intuitively quickly having to respond here that certainly is difficult to do because we tend to we we like to apply certain economic values to certain things and uh, it is very hard actually to to put the economic value on on a on ecosystem services those they come true or they develop over time from from a farming perspective um i i can't really tell you if there's any uh, economic value unless you have maybe an interest in actively providing habitat to to wildlife and maybe uh, that may attract if you have large properties that that you may attract you you can you can maybe go into the hunting business and give them out licenses like large farms or whatever do that in Texas. But from a from a purely cash flow perspective, someone else might be an economist or whatever. But I cannot tell you well if you have a 15, 50 feet wide return area, you make that much more money. It simply is a contribution to the ecosystem services to society and to clean water and to wildlife habitat and and simply having a pleasant landscape and giving the waterways the rivers and the creeks the room so to speak they they want to operate in and keeping the landscape intact so it is very hard to actually translate that into a true dollar value it's not like you know if you would ask me well what happens on that hay operation well i can tell you yeah you put that much in you get that much out that is more difficult to say when it comes to repairing areas. Yeah, yeah, and, and it is hard to quantify, um, especially in the dollars and cents of ecosystem value. But in terms of you know land loss from erosion or flooding, um, you know what perspective would that have on a landowner? Would what would maybe the benefits be there? Yeah, um, yeah, that's basically an extension of of your 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 first question on that topic. The uh, I think from from a landowner's perspective, if your first thought is okay, I uh, what do I lose in terms of land, and how much crops can I grow in this land, and and how much loss would I have in terms of dollar values? But that there's a something else to it. What what happens if your if your land literally falls into the river and someone else down the stream has to clean that up somehow if it gets into if it's some um, sedimentation occurring so you have a uh, rivers get more shallow that means they get warmer that means you have certain fish species do not occur anymore then that means no one wants to go fishing anymore that means your tourism industry is affected all that so there are multitude of layers there where it's really hard to tell, okay, how much money do you actually lose in 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 when you when when you lose part of your part of your land? So the um from I think from a perspective, there are yes, there are properties that that border big rivers or creeks. And whenever you, you can measure that, oh, it's my land is lost, but I think what happens more, what's more important on the property is since most properties are large enough or the topography is such that there's always a creek running through your property. And if when you erode that away, you simply have less production going on. And that is that is not just not just your haying operation, because as I said, your haying operation is mostly in a flat area. 
And those areas are really not all that prone to go away unless there's some, whatever, thousand year event like we have in Kentucky right now, whatever, in terms of rainfall. It is more your constant erosion of topsoil and you having to somehow um, substitute for that with bringing in more fertilizer or, or simply have different plant populations shooting up and that means you have to use your weed control that means you have to pay a lot of money to combat your weeds so that is more and that's very indirect <clears throat> and unless you really keep track of that like on a 10 or 20 year study or something like that it's very very difficult to actually pin that on that loss of soil from from your property so i think since uh there are obviously very little or you know there are properties like that but but to my understanding, there are not a whole lot of properties that are so large that that enclose an entire river, but it's more those small waterways that go through your properties that are more danger in terms of your sediment loss and, and water quality impairments and all that. Okay. Yeah, and on the topic of water quality impairments, you know, what are some direct soil and water quality health, health benefits from implementing a riparian buffer zone? Yeah, that is... Those can be quantified much, much easier than, you know, when, when you ask, well, what is the economic value for a parent area? The, um, whenever you lose nutrients to a stream, obviously it doesn't stay in your place and, and, and your plants kind of take advantage of it. You, uh, then you've got sediment intake that on the, the major route of losing any kind or phosphorus in particular is being attached to the soil so we necessarily do not lose phosphorus from leaching there, i mean over time we found out that yes uh, there is some tiny small amount of phosphorus can leach actually but most of it's going away through uh, sediment loss and that's the main thing because you simply lose the soil you know and you're not just the phosphorus that has some water quality impairments, but you also have the the loss of other nutrients, important nutrients like nitrogen, whatever. That particular is leaching, but when it comes to phosphorus, of yeah, you you lose that through sediment loss or soil loss. So you not only put the phosphorus into the creek, you you lose literally the foundation of your operation. Um, and so to kind of distinguish between what actions landowners should take towards this, are there any resources or um you know, different organizations that you might suggest for landowners to reach out to? Well, organizations where they get information from, like like your organization. And um, obviously, for we'll talk about the topic for a reason here. And then there are, there are resources and, and, and they get you pretty far. Again, we have fact sheets. Uh, the foresters from, from the extension service, they, they wrote several good fact sheets and how a repairing area is going to look like. But then when it comes to the specifics, you you probably have to talk to a forester if you want to reestablish trees, because not not obviously not trees are all alike, and in in some of them they work better on your property than they work on other properties. But the uh, if if you look around and even look at the neighbors, they have already a, a repair area or reestablish repair area that goes a long way towards towards protecting those areas. Of these projects they seem so daunting and so even something like a fact sheet can go a long way towards kind of moving them in the right direction right yeah well i appreciate you coming on and talking about riparian buffer zones and the different options that agricultural producers have with riparian buffer zones 
Yeah, again, thanks for having me on your program, on your podcast. So I can only encourage landowners to, to get in touch with whomever they like to get in touch to, to get help. So the, the, uh, we are certainly able or we are very willing and able to come out and look at that side actually and, and, and give them any help they, they deserve and, and, and want when it comes to reestablishing or managing their repair areas. Well, thank you for coming on, Dirk. And um, hopefully we'll be able to snag you again for another episode. Mm -hmm. You're very welcome. Hello, everyone. Thank you for listening. And a big thank you to Dirk for coming on as a guest again. If you'd like to follow up about any of the information on this podcast, please feel free to email Dirk or BWA. And I'll put their contact info in the description below. As always, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and please keep an eye out for future content.